other than in third world countries where the electricity is readily available and they have epidemics of high voltage electrical injuries. But in North America and most parts of Europe, Electrical burns represent way less than 1% of all admissions that get the burn units and an even smaller component that get into the emergency room. So it's like a rare topic. And the result of that is the fact that you aren't going to see randomized control trials. You're not even going to see good prospective trials on a lot of the things we're going to talk about. So a lot of it is just based on simple approach, common sense, and things that are related to other forms of trauma like People still alkalinize the urine. People give more fluid. You, we could argue till tomorrow how much fluid. But the, the principles are there, but they're not established in like exact algorithms because these cases are so rare. That's just the way it is. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This is part two of our main episode podcast on burn, inhalational, and electrical injuries. In part one, Dr. Joel Fish and Dr. Maria Vankovic and I discussed wound care, resuscitation, and airway management of the burn patient and the inhalational injury patient, with a segment on awake intubation by George Kovacs. If you haven't already, please go and listen to part one first, because we'll be referring back to part one in this podcast probably a few times. So what are we going to do this time around? In this podcast, we'll answer questions like, when you see a skin lesion after an electrical injury, the tip of the iceberg, how can you predict clinically what kind of iceberg lies beneath the skin? How are lightning strike injuries different than household or industrial electrical injuries when it comes to potential injuries and management? What are the immediate life threats that we need to know about and how to identify and manage them in the first hour? How do you best work up the cardiac complications of electrical injuries? Which patients with electrical injuries need cardiac monitoring? How long do you need to observe patients in the ED for? Are there any good admission criteria for electrical injury patients? How is fluid management different from the patient with a scalding burn or an inhalation injury as opposed to an electrical injury? And what are the important potential delayed injuries that we need to be aware of before sending a patient home after an electrical injury? So these are just some of the things that we'll touch on and hopefully a lot more. So let's jump right into a case. You're called to the resuscitation room overhead as EMS is bringing in a 53-year-old male. He was installing a flagpole when he accidentally touched a power cable. His coworker reported to EMS that he held the cable for about five seconds and he saw a spark coming from his back. On arrival, his GCS is 14 and there are obvious severe electrical burns to both arms and across his abdomen. He's complaining of abdominal, leg, and arm pain. His vitals are normal except for a heart rate of 110. So, Dr. Ivankovic, What's your general approach to this patient in the emergency department? You want to approach this patient as a trauma patient first. So you're going to do your primary and secondary survey as you normally would for any trauma patient and deal with the burns later. And you want to keep in mind that even if this patient didn't fall or get thrown, um, that he could have fractures, dislocations, and even a spinal injury from forceful muscle contractions. 
um, that he likely experienced when he came into contact with the electrical source. Um, and these are the type of patients that you're going to want to reach out to your trauma and burn centers very early on. And they absolutely need to be cleared as a trauma first before they will be accepted uh, at any burn center. Yeah, I understand that the incidence of traumatic injury, aside from the electrical burn and the rhabdo and the cardiac stuff, uh, that there's actually quite a high incidence. You know, the classic one that's easy to miss is the posterior shoulder dislocation. Dr. Fish, any uh, words of wisdom when it comes to dealing with the trauma first and what kind of traumatic injuries you can expect with uh, an electrical injury? So we talked about this in the last podcast, and one of the comments made was, don't get sucked into the burn. The burn is very dramatic and, and skip over, and we talked about that. So if you take that concept and you double it in your mind, an electrical injury patient with visible electrical injuries is a very dramatic picture. When they come in, they will have arms held in tetanospasm. They can have limbs that are literally blown off all the way to the other spectrum where there's almost nothing to see. So, you know, the diligence to the trauma is essential. The musculoskeletal injury and the high level of uh, fractures, long bone fractures, number of things that we've talked about, you just have to be so careful not to skip over that issue. All right. So you're going to bring your patient into your resuscitation room. You're going to start some IVs. You're going to send off some labs. What labs are kind of key essential ones to send off on uh, electrical injury patients? So since this is a trauma patient, I'm going to include my trauma labs, and I'm particularly going to include a CK in this case because these patients are at high risk of rhabdomyolysis. Along with the lab tests, the moment that the Foley catheter goes in, within a very short period of time, you will start to see bloody or dark urine well before they're resuscitated or even in the early stages if you've We'll talk about resuscitation, but you will have that clinical picture. So the CK, hugely important to get a bit of a baseline, I guess, along with all the other things that people usually do, the EKG, chest x-rays, et cetera. But in terms of lab values, CK, if I had to choose one, would be right at the top. All right. So absolutely essential things to get besides your usual trauma panel. You want to get a CK. You want to get an ECG because a lot of these patients will have cardiac abnormalities, uh, and you want to really be on the lookout for long bone fractures, posterior shoulder dislocation is easy to miss again, and your CABCs like you would in, in any trauma patient. So the clinical experience with the, low, the high voltage uh, electrical injury patient that makes it into the emergency room, there's a lot written about the, uh, the cardiac monitoring and the cardiac presentation. There are a group of patients if they present at the scene with a cardiac dysrhythmia, usually ventricular fibrillation at the scene is the most common one for paramedics that pick them up. Those group of patients go into another category because they will have had some kind of direct effect either through the um, alternating currents if they were present or through the direct effects. And that that's a marker that you will have when they arrive in your emergency room. Red lights go off in your head that you start to think that this is the real thing. The whole other group, the much larger group, more than 90% of them present just like this gentleman. They have a sustained tachycardia, doesn't appear to be necessarily related to possibly more than the fact that A, they need some fluid, B, they're in pain, and C, they're now lying in an emergency room where an hour ago they were putting up a flagpole. And so when you combine all those things, and often there is very little to find. People still send troponins. People do serial EKGs. People will put the, the monitors on to monitor them. 
if they have not had something at the time of the scene, the likelihood of you picking it up sub- subsequently actually goes quite low. And um, if you go back and you look at electrical injury patients and you actually just go back and look at their labs and see, it's very rare to pick something up fresh. Yeah. And if they're going to have a cardiac arrhythmia, typically is going to be in that first hour. Um, so you want to get your ECG as soon as they come in. And I think it's reasonable to have them on the monitor to monitor them while they're in your department for sure. All right. And if they're in VFib, you give them more electricity. I always thought there was a little bit of an irony there. All right. Now we need to consider the factors that make it more likely that there's going to be an injury. We've already talked a little bit about if they're going to have a cardiac injury, you'll probably see it in the first hour. But as you said, sometimes you see not, not much on the skin, but they have injury beneath. Based on the history, what factors do we need to consider to help anticipate the degree of injury when it comes to electrical injury? You know, how do we know what kind of iceberg lies beneath the surface when all we see is the tip of the iceberg, a localized, you know, say a localized skin electrical burn? My understanding is that there's three or four factors that are really important to consider. One is the voltage. Mm-hmm. Two is whether it's AC or DC. Three is the duration of contact. And four is whether it's a wet or dry environment. Um, there might be some other ones we, which we can add, but those are really the big ones. So let's start with the voltage. Uh, Dr. Ivankovic, how do we divide up the voltages and what kind of injuries can we expect based on the voltage? So you can break voltage down into low voltage and high voltage. So under 600 volts, it generally are low voltage. And those are your household or office exposures. So in Canada, most household voltage is 110 to 240 volts. Um, In Europe, it's up to 400 volts. Unfortunately, these types of contacts are generally lower-risk injuries. Um, But as you mentioned, there are other factors that can play in and even make a low-voltage injury a much more serious type of injury. Okay, so these low-voltage ones, they'll cause superficial burns. Rhabdo is pretty unlikely with them, um, unless, again, the the environmental factors are, are piled on there. So that's low voltage. What about the higher voltage over 600? So we're talking about industrial injuries. Uh, we're talking about if someone in the falls into the Toronto uh, subway um, and gets electrocuted on the, the rail. What kind of injuries can we expect in a high voltage injury? Yeah, so high voltage, so over 600 volts, and some sources would say 1,000 volts. Um, but as you mentioned, the third rail of the subway, in particular in Toronto, is 600 volts, and that can be associated with uh, more significant injuries. Uh, with those voltages, you, you can certainly expect to get a lot more severe injury, um, and particularly when there's AC current. So AC current uh what we know is alternating current, is where electrons switch directions at regular intervals. And this generally causes prolonged exposures and continuous muscle spasm. And that uh, can significantly increase your risk of rhabdomyolysis, for example. And now most power lines, such as the the case our gentleman uh, was exposed to, is AC and typically tens of thousands of volts. Um, And certainly that can cause tetany, like we saw in this gentleman, where it caused a prolonged exposure. Okay, so there's the voltage, which we divide between low, which is less than 600, and high, which is more than 600, and then whether it's AC or DC, AC is worse than DC, and AC is the one that's associated with that prolonged contact. Get tetany, and the more contact they have, the more damage there's going to be. When you're going into this high-voltage AC, uh, we can expect things like rhabdo and deep burns and cardiac uh, problems along with that. What about lightning? I mean, lightning's got to be 
you know, millions, if not a billion volts, how is lightning different than your usual low or high voltage injury? Right. So lightning is kind of in its own category. So that tends to be millions of volts. And that's a DC, so direct current. Um, Fortunately, though, the contact is generally very brief. So we're talking milliseconds. Now, survival rates can be quite good, but patients that do survive typically have significant morbidity. The interesting thing about lightning strike patients is that they can initially look like they're dead. They can have fixed dilated pupils from autonomic dysfunction and cold modeled extremities from vasospasm. They can also get asystole from the massive direct shock to the heart that depolarizes the myocardium. So in addition to the cardiac arrest, they can also have respiratory arrest from paralysis of the respiratory muscles. So with lightning strike victims, particularly in a mass casualty incident, you actually should be following the reverse triage method, where the patients that look dead, you want to treat first because they have good survival rates if they get immediate attention. Um, So the cardiac arrest from the asystole can actually spontaneously resolve, and they can get return of spontaneous circulation. But the respiratory arrest due to the medullary paralysis can actually take longer to resolve. Um, So they can get a second hypoxic arrest if you don't uh, maintain respiratory support. Wow. So lightning strikes are a whole different kettle of fish. Talking about fish, Dr. Fish. (laughs) That was a really bad joke. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, you're not the first. You're not the last. (laughs) Any practical points you can give us about, we talked about voltage, AC or DC, the duration of contact, wet or dry environment is another one. If it's a wet environment, it's going to be worse injuries. From a practical perspective, how do you think we should uh, incorporate these factors into our decision making? When we think of electrical injury, we really, many of the talks I've given over the years would have some kind of a title with a theme, fighting the invisible enemy. We have no way of measuring it in a medical format when somebody comes in to contact household, office, low-level industrial, industrial, all the way up to the high tension, high levels of current, those very skilled workers. We have very little way of understanding where that damage has gone. And so you always, from a much bigger perspective, you need to realize we cannot see the invisible injury. And so you always need to remain diligent. How does that manifest in the emergency room? So we use all of the things Maria has said, the high voltage. Sometimes we'll hear about relatively low voltages, but high currents in the industry. And so those can be equally damaging. That's the flow of energy as opposed to the actual power level, a little bit of a detail. But we use those things to drive us. And then this concept of individual susceptibility. So uh, the example would be the worker in a workplace for uh, two years. The workplace has been open in a wet, moist environment in the summer. The susceptibility of your skin may be measured in 500 ohms, 1,000 ohms, very, very low resistance. That same exact place in the middle of the winter with dry, calloused hands and it's cold, you can have ohms and the resistance up to 10,000 ohms in your hands. And these, this is one example, but there are many factors, and we only find out about them later. But in the emergency room, I think leaving your mind open to the fact that what you see may not be what you're going to get. Stick to the basics, as I think is a good, safe approach. And anything that just doesn't fit the picture, you're going to go and look at it. Any kind of localizing sign or something that just doesn't quite fit.
now we've taken these things into consideration and in our patient, it's it's high voltage, prolonged duration of contact. We're worried about this guy. Let's talk about these potential secondary injuries from electrical shock. So since cardiac injuries will be the most time sensitive for us in the ED, let's start with cardiac problems that arise from electrical injury. Dr. Ivankovic, what are the cardiac complications of electrical injury we should be aware of besides AFib and asystole, which will happen usually right away? So fortunately, cardiac complications are actually not that common in electrical injuries. Um, incidence of arrhythmias in the literature is reported from anywhere from 4 to 17%. Um, but most arrhythmias are actually benign, and they'll typically occur within the first few hours of hospitalization. Um, and on ECG, you might see a variety of changes. So you might see bundle branch blocks, um, an AV block, QT prolongation, ST changes, and AFib. Um, but the good news is these generally resolve without treatment. VFib is the most common fatal arrhythmia, and it generally will happen right away. Um, and certainly is more common with AC current. And as I mentioned, with, elect- with the lightning injuries, um, asystole uh, would be more common with DC. All right. And when you have the patient who has a burn on both hands, you can assume that it's gone through their heart. Does that make it more likely that they're going to end up with uh, VF? So this is one of the teachings that is riddled through the literature, this concept of the entrance and the exit wound. And um, when you delve into this topic and you have experience with this, nothing actually could be further from the truth. So the classic textbooks will show a hand reaching and touching a pole, and they'll show a lightning bolt going down across the heart and either coming out the other hand or out through the leg. But nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, the tissues in the body all have resistance, which we know in terms of skin relative to fat, relative to the interface of bone and muscle, and other conducting and less conducting tissues have a huge impact on how the energy flows through the body. The other thing is that in high voltage injury, the energies we're talking about overwhelm the natural currents that are in your body. So the natural currents in our body are measured in millivolts, And these are now in thousands of volts or even a couple of hundred volts. They quickly overwhelm the tissues and the energy will escape and leave and manifest and jump and arc over the patient. And now a conduction injury is converted. Thermal injury is now converted into a flame burn. The clothes catch on fire. And so this concept of the energy flowing like a river in a straight direction is 100% wrong. The other thing about this is that it doesn't matter. So I would say if I showed you a picture of a patient with a high energy contact and you'll never miss it, dry, desiccated limb, possibly held in tetanus spasm like this guy, and then you see an injury on his back where there's obviously been some burns, does it matter that that the energy traveled from his back and then traveled to his arm or it went the other way? And the answer is 100% no. Both of those areas are are points of high energy contact. Both of them are clinically relevant and both of them would need to be followed well past the time of the emergency room. And that really is, is a, if I had a, a major take-home point on the clinical exam, it would be to repeat the term iceberg injury. What you see is not what you get. And just because you see areas of high energy transfer, that's what you would focus on. But this concept of knowing where it went in and where it came out really doesn't lead you anywhere useful. All right, that brings up the conundrum of serial troponins for these patients. So my understanding is that MI is actually quite rare in electrical injured patients. 
yet I see troponins and serial ECGs done on pretty much all of these patients, especially if, you know, you get the story, which now we know is kind of a myth that they have burns on both hands. So that brings up the question, I mean, I'm sure we don't have massive RCTs to tell us what the right answer is, but which patients would you do serial troponins and ECGs on? So that's a great question. Like you said, there isn't great evidence behind this because they are pretty rare uh, injuries to start with. But as you mentioned, acute MI is very rare. Although you can get thrombogenic effects, you can also get direct electrical or thermal injury of the myocardium that could cause an MI or CHF. There are rare cases of STEMIs reported in the literature, but um, they're typically associated with normal coronaries on angio, so it's likely from vasospasm. Um, But again, unfortunately, there isn't enough literature to guide us, particularly with respect to interpreting the troponins. So I would base it on the patient's symptoms and their pre-existing risk factors. Um, So positive troponins will still likely need prolonged monitoring and further workup with echo and possibly even consultation with a cardiologist. Very rare to ever find them positive. An experience um, over more than 10 years with more than 40 patients with significant electrical injuries, plus a series of patients through an electrical injury clinic, more than 100 patients over a series of years, uh, troponins almost universally never useful. Are they wrong to order them? No. Are they harmful? No. Um, Do they get ordered on everybody? Yes. That's been my experience. Okay. So I think the conservative approach is yes. To order them, understanding that it's extraordinarily rare to actually get myocardial injury, that really we should be paying attention to the patient's symptoms um, and their risk factors. Uh, Those are the patients that you really want to worry about. The vast majority of these patients we really don't need to worry about, and we'll wait for any literature that might come out once we get more than a few dozen of these patients that we can actually study properly. What about the non-cardiac secondary injuries from electrical shocks? So there's CNS stuff like seizures and spinal cord injuries. Uh, There's ruptured tympanic membranes. There's vascular complications, fractures from tetany or falls. There's AKI from rhabdo. There's all the stuff to think about. But what are some of the more important sort of immediate life threats that we need to assess and look for in the first hour or two in the ED? So with electrical injuries, really anything is possible, (laughs) so so as you were mentioning. Um, So aside from the traumatic injuries, we talked a little bit about uh, cardiac arrhythmia. So again, that's most likely to happen in that first hour. So you just want to make sure you have your, uh, do an ECG, have your patient on the monitor. Uh, The other thing is rhabdo, uh, and that's something that we need to start managing right away. And the third thing I would say is compartment syndrome. So you want to be regularly assessing their limbs and perfusion and looking for any signs of uh, acute limb ischemia. Okay. So again, the big three things are the the cardiac, which will be pretty obvious on your ECG. Yeah. Because we're really, it's the arrhythmias that we're worried about. Um, It's rhabdo, which we're going to start treating right away. And we'll talk about how to treat rhabdo in a minute, um, and then compartment syndrome, which you really need to examine for carefully. And those are the really the big three things that in the first couple of hours we need to be on the lookout for. If you can keep your eye on the ball, the fluid resuscitation, the kidney injury that is pending if you don't treat the rhabdo, and make sure that the limbs are 
either being released or being sent to a place where they can be released, you are going to do a great service to these patients. Let's talk about compartment syndrome and fasciotomies. So first of all, I mean, we all know that compartment syndrome is paid out, pain out of proportion. Practically speaking, how are we going to be picking up compartment syndrome in these patients? So these patients are at particularly high risk because the membranes of the muscle in particular and the nerves, but the muscles themselves will have both a direct and an indirect injury. So the the because they are so conductive, the electricity will flow. So there will be that, that direct injury. And now you're resuscitating the patient. So they will swell as a result of both types of injury and puts them at in much increased risk for compartment syndrome, say compared to other burn patients, even a massive burn patient with a 50% burn, and their risk is much earlier. So, and it's unpredictable. So the rates of prophylactically going in and releasing the fascia, particularly in the arms and in the legs, um, very low threshold to make sure that that gets done expeditiously. Okay. And to to clarify here, we're talking about a fasciotomy, not an escherotomy. Absolutely. So the fasciotomy, I am unaware of an emergency room practitioner that would be comfortable to go ahead and do a fasciotomy. I, it requires the kind of anatomic familiarity with nerves and vessels that would be well beyond most emergentologists. However, there are are people, orthopedic surgeons, general surgeons, plastic surgeons who attend in the trauma bay who, if you can't get them to a burn center, should be able to uh, relieve those compartments as needed. Okay. So the escherotomy in your burn patient, the scalding burn patient, that's something that's potentially in the toolbox of the emergency physician with help from your burn center. If you had to do an escherotomy, it's certainly something that we could do. This, for electrical injuries, we're talking about fasciotomy and compartment syndrome. Just getting back to the compartment syndrome part, clinically, when you go and actually see this guy uh, at the bedside and you have compartment syndrome in your head because he's at high risk for it, what are you actually looking for when you, ex- when you, when you ask him questions and when you're examining him? So in this kind of a situation, so let's say we're well within the f- first hour and uh, you've done your ABCs, you've triage the patient. You've got rid of all the other forms of trauma. Now you're looking at their limbs. So if they're conscious enough and they can talk to you, first of all, you will see limbs held in what we call tetanus spasm. They tend to put them into a flexed position. And more so, you can actually feel the compartments themselves. If both sides are injured, it may be hard to tell. And they will have incredible pain on trying to extend the the limb. So they'll be held. They may or may not even be able to extend the limb. People have gone and used the compartment, the um, pressures where they've gone to measure the intercompartmental pressures. But I would never rely on that alone because there's both direct and indirect effects that are happening. Very low threshold. And we also know that if there are in the areas of visible injury, which they often are, the, the prophylactic release of that area, very low threshold to just go ahead and do that. All right. So many of these patients will be holding their elbow and their wrist in flexion and passive extension of either of those joints will cause excruciating pain um, in these patients. And of course, when you palpate the, the compartment and compare it to the other side, if it feels rock hard, you really got to call your, get your surgeon on the phone um, and prepare for getting this patient to the OR for a fasciotomy. All right, so that's the compartment syndrome bit. 
Let's talk about the Rabdo and AKI bit. So how do we prevent AKI in our patient who had a workplace electrical injury? So we know that um, these patients, because of all the things we've talked about, are, their muscle is going to break down. It's going to be, they're going to have raw proteins floating around through the bloodstream. And now they're going to be presented at the level of the kidney. When the kidney has free protein in the blood and it filters it, if the pH of the kidney is not ideal, the teaching is, is that those proteins will crystallize, which is why we alkalinize the urine. That is, that is the teaching. So there's the sort of the pre-renal and then the intrarenal injury. But in, once those proteins have been filtered, if you can alkalinize the urine or alkalinize the patient to some degree, you will supposedly ward off or it will be preventative. Now, it's controversial whether it works, how long you do it, but the use of bicarb and alkalinization of the urine would be considered a a fairly normal practice. And if you were unsure and you called your local burn center, there's about 100% chance they're going to say to you, alkalinize the urine. And then the next stage, which is the a little bit more tricky, everyone agrees you give high volumes of fluid. Now, this group of patients are young, healthy males. That represents about 95% of the high voltage electrical injuries that are seen in emergency rooms in North America. And so when you take that group of patients, they handle fluid quite well. And so the starting point for resuscitation, unlike major burn patients where we have Parkland formulas and things to guide us where to start, we don't have that in the electrical injury patient. People will start them in a normal, otherwise healthy adult, 200, 300 cc's an hour of fluid. They will then start to monitor them with the Foley catheter, their urine output, their central venous pressure, of course, their arterial pressure. They might look for other signs of perfusion, the general signs that we use to monitor early forms of resuscitation, no different than in any other form of trauma. What we can't agree on and what does not exist, because this is invisible and we have no idea how big the internal leak and inflammation is going to be with those patients, we don't have a good guide, so you need to be following them closely. A urine output every half an hour would be a recommendation that most people would come up with, because once you get behind, it's almost impossible to catch up. Okay, so we're going to prevent rhabdo in these patients who may very well have rhabdo based on what looks like not such a bad injury on the surface um, by fluid resuscitating pretty aggressively, like giving more fluid than we would by the Parkland formula. And I guess luckily for us, most of these patients are going to be young, healthy males, and so they can handle a bit of extra fluid. So I think that's kind of your your default is to really be aggressive with the, uh, with the fluid. Now, that's how we're going to prevent rhabdo. How would you recognize, like when do you say, oh shit, this patient's in big trouble with rhabdo. So the experience is, first of all, you will get your CK values back relatively quickly from the lab and you will start to see values in the thousands fairly quickly. It often takes, even with a resuscitation, they will quickly peak in the tens of thousands, even in the low hundreds of thousands over the period of 12 to 24 hours, depending on how much muscle damage there is and depending on the patient. But you will see numbers in the tens of thousands quite quickly within four to six hours, and you will see dark urine, blood-stained, ruby-red urine, which you will, once you've seen it once, unless there's a medication or you have some other reason to believe this 30-year-old, otherwise healthy person has blood in their urine, what looks like blood, it's rhabdomyolysis, and you will see it clear 
very quickly. So if you're in the unfortunate circumstance where they're in your emergency room for even a half, six hours or more while you're resuscitating them, getting them packed up, handing them off to a burn center where they absolutely belong, you will start to see the urine clear. You'll notice that their urine output, which is beyond one cc per kilo per hour. So we now go for a higher urine output in that patient. Uh, most of them are intubated at that time and they will handle this fluid quite, quite well. But if you follow those lab values, you will see them go through the roof. And of course, you have other things like the uh, potassium. So you will see, because of direct injury to the muscle, you will see a hyperkalemia. Um, that's also readily correctable just through your resuscitation. It would be extremely rare in an acute scenario that you would be treating this hyperkalemia similar to other forms of hyperkalemia with insulin, etc. This is a traumatic injury to the muscle. There's disruption of the membranes and you need big volumes of fluid resuscitation. Well, that's interesting. So if we see a potassium come back at, say, six and a half early on in a severe electrical injury, I just want to clarify that. We're going to be fluid resuscitating aggressively. We might not necessarily try and shift with insulin and glucose and Right. So this gets into more of the general uh, trauma literature. It's not always the, the the actual level of the acute change in the electrolyte. It's the rate of change. These patients were injured and the rates can be quite high if there's nothing wrong with their heart and there's no other reason to acutely treat that hyperkalemia. You can ride it out and you can give them fluid and it will self-correct because we understand where the problem is. And it will rel- readily self-correct as you fluid resuscitate them. 6.5 is not something I've ever seen, but 100% we've seen them in the high fives, getting towards six, especially in those first hours well, where there may have been a delay getting in. But a lot of those electrolyte abnormalities are going to self-correct as you start to fluid resuscitate them. There's also the controversies of giving mannitol and alkalinizing the urine. You had mentioned that the burn center will probably recommend alkalinizing the urine in all these severe electrical injury cases. Can you just tell us a little bit about the indications, even though we don't have much evidence for it, what the indications would be to start mannitol and what the indications would be to start sodium bicarb? So the sodium bicarb is a lot less problematic. So even though we don't have, we're never going to have randomized control trials that are going to tell us this is the thing to do. But it is also, there is very little on the harm side of that risk equation. So alkalinizing the urine in a patient by giving bicarb and giving at least an amp, sometimes two per liter of Ringer's lactate is a very safe practice and rarely does it re- lead to problems. And also it's going to be over a series of 12 and 24 hours. So when you take that into account, the bicarb issue is not the big controversy. Where we start to get into problems and the practice of using osmotic diuresis through things like mannitol, you have got to make sure that you have good evidence that you have filled up the tank. So if you know that their CVP is encroaching on 14 and 16 and you've been fluid resuscitating them and their kidneys are chugging along, but they're not necessarily going much beyond one cc per kilo, you have this visual look and their urine is not clearing after a number of hours, You, it's safe to give 
the osmotic diuretic. The problem is if you give it too early, you now have given an additional insult. And that is the problem. So you are now going to be depleting the vasculature. You have this, it's supposed to work. And this is where the controversy comes in because mannitol given to a patient who does not have adequate fluid resuscitation can be pretty harmful in its in its overall effects that it'll have. Okay. Safe to say that it's really initially it's all about fluid resuscitation. And then maybe you want to get on the phone with your burn center and ask about mannitol, ask about sodium bicarb. I mean, one of the things with sodium bicarb, my understanding is in these patients, they can sometimes get hypocalcemia and that the sodium bicarb would, could theoretically worsen the hypocalcemia. Is that something you actually see? This gets into a detail that I hope is not something that you have to deal with in the emergency room. But if you take a 30-year-old, this gentleman is, let's stick with the case, 50 years old, let's assume otherwise healthy, has sustained major electrical injury. The amount of fluid that is potentially needed to resuscitate this patient could be in the order of six to 800 cc's an hour for a couple of hours until it drops down to maybe somewhere around 500 cc's an hour till you're trying to get them off. So we're talking a couple of liters of crystalloid being infused over a relatively short period of time. Our experience in the burn centers is we do not chase acute changes in electrolytes unless there's a real clinical reason to do it. The relatively um, short-lived changes in calcium, magnesium, and phosphate that accompany these kinds of resuscitations are really relatively meaningless in the big scheme. Where they become important are 72 hours later where the chronically low levels now can start to have effects in terms of the working of the gut, the heart. And that's like now we're getting into formal long-term resuscitation well beyond the emergency room. Okay. So for, for our purposes, um, if there's a bit of hyper-K, we fluid resuscitate, it'll probably come down. If there's a bit of hypo calcemia, we fluid resuscitate, it'll probably probably help fix it. I just want to talk a little bit more about lab values in terms of the CK. Now, you had mentioned that you can get CK in the tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands. Does the level of the CK correlate with the level of injury? Not perfectly. So, and the reason it can be misleading. So I would, this is one of those uh, medical lab values that once you're above 10,000, this is highly abnormal. So the difference between 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50, sure, I would argue that 50, probably there's been more injury. But on the clinical basis, it, it's not simple to say, oh, you get five times more fluid. It's going to last five times longer. It is not a direct correlation. And even the very high levels, it usually just correlates with the amount of muscle damage, which becomes apparent days later. And that's re- it's sort of a loose correlation, but it doesn't drive your resuscitation. It doesn't make you want to release the limbs any sooner or later. Any level that's over 10,000 is hugely significant. Okay. So it's not like a lactate where the higher the lactate pretty much, you know, it, it correlates very well with mortality and say sepsis. One of the simple ways to remember this is that CK is sort of a physiologic release due to direct injury to muscle membranes, as opposed to something like lactate, which is metabolically produced. There are really two different mechanisms, sure. and one is very short-lived, and we're going to correct it. So that's a little bit about CK. What about urine myoglobin? I mean, usually it's going to be obvious if a patient has rhabdo, they'll have dark urine, big high-voltage electrical injury, 
Is there any value in getting a urine myoglobin to help you assess whether the patient's in rhabdo? It's not going to help you. So unfortunately, it doesn't have great sensitivity. So it will be negative in at least half of your patients with rhabdo. So it's not very useful. Not useful. And it's expensive. Expensive. It's hard to get. Mm-hmm. And it could mislead you. It, it'll, it could lead you down a path where you're looking for something that's just not necessary. Okay. So very important to prevent AKI in these patients with massive electrical injuries. You know, even if there's no hard evidence that they have rhabdo in front of you, you really want to start aggressive fluid therapy. And we're talking ringer's lactate at two or three or 400 cc's an hour. Yeah, and I think to make it easy, um, I think it's just really important to remember that none of the formulas apply for electrical injuries. They're completely different. And even though there aren't specific guidelines, I think it's reasonable, Joel, uh, to start at 300 to 500 cc's um, and then titrate to urine output. Uh, so for your electrical injuries, you're going to have a higher um, output goal, so about 50 to 100 cc's. Some sources will say 1.5 cc's per kilo and titrate accordingly. I agree. And the only thing I would add to that is if, of course, in the emergency room, people hang up bags of fluid and let them run. Right. And then they, and we don't, we don't ask or check always that it's going at three or 500 cc's. Is it harmful to bolus the patient? Probably not. The problem is that this type of injury and burns, as we've talked about before, this is an inflammatory response that's going to go on for hours. And so bolusing the patient is sort of physiologically different than what the body is asking for. It's probably preferable if you can, if you have a means of controlling the rate of the infusion of fluid. It makes more sense physiologically. It has not been tied to better outcomes. So it's not wrong that you've bolused the patient. But if you're going to be hanging on to them for a couple of hours or more, and you're going to have to then start playing with their fluids, you'll find it easier to know what you're doing if you're able to run a continuous rate as opposed to bolusing them. So generally no bolusing, continuous rate, three to 500 cc's an hour and meticulous monitoring of their urine output and and end organ perfusion. So that's our sick patient. We see way more patients that aren't so sick, right? So we'll see... We'll see the teenager that gets a household electric shock and they come in and it seems like the question always comes up is which of these patients actually need cardiac monitoring? You know, we only have so many cardiac monitors in our ED and we have to use them wisely. Dr. Ivankovic, is there any guidance as to which patients with electrical injuries require cardiac monitoring? So the good news is that in patients who have had a low voltage exposure without chest pain or syncope, the studies do not support the need for cardiac monitoring. Now, for high voltage exposures, there is some evidence that cardiac monitoring might not be required, but most literature still recommends monitoring for a minimum of six hours, um, and some will say up to 24, but I think six to eight hours sounds reasonable. What I think is much more problematic in the emergency room, especially these low voltage cases that come in, is that the physical findings of electrical injury can be really hard to diagnose, and they may not be present when they come in. 
In fact, that's more often than not that is the case in the worker's injury, the work-related injuries where there is something wrong. And what I try to teach in this area and what I try to help people visualize is think of your nerves and your muscles. The membranes work in millivolts. If you, for some reason, stuck your hand into a light ballast, so that's the energy-producing part that the light fixture is attached to, 600 volts, and you came in contact with your right dominant hand for, let's say, 10 seconds. 100% of the time, those voltages relative to the millivolts of your nerve and your muscle, if you can picture that, those nerves and muscles will have injury at the level of the proteins. And there will be little tiny holes that are created. And those patients will go to the emergency room and they will see nothing. But when those membranes heal in about three weeks or four weeks, that's when we start to see the problems. That What I have just explained with a little bit of detail is the most common scenario in these low-voltage injuries where the patients present later, weeks later, well after you've seen them in the emergency room. So that's potential for major pitfalls for sure. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Let's figure out criteria for discharge from the emergency department first, and then we'll talk about the discharge instructions and how to explain to them about delayed injuries and the potential for delayed injuries. So first, are there any criteria out there for a safe discharge after electrical injuries? So there's not any great guidelines to to let us know exactly what patients can go home. Um, But I would say in general for low-voltage patients that are symptom-free, so your home or office exposure for the most part, they just need an ECG. And if that's fine, they can go. But we'll talk a little bit more about uh, discharge instructions. Um, But again, for low-voltage patients that are symptom-free, All they need is an ECG, so they don't need blood tests. uh, They don't need a urine myoglobin or anything, just an ECG. And if it's fine, um, they can go with good discharge instructions. Okay, so that'll be the vast majority of patients Yeah, there's a lot of patients that we can just send home. Okay, that being said, again, they might not have anything that we can see, uh, but they might have injuries. So we'll get onto the discharge instructions in a second. Okay, so the patient who's asymptomatic and has a low-voltage injury, assuming that they weren't you know, in a swimming pool when they had the low-voltage injury, that those patients, all they need is an ECG, no blood work necessary. You don't need to observe them for hours and hours and hours. They can go straight home. That's right. Okay. Now, if you have a symptomatic patient at any voltage, they're going to get a workup, including the ECG labs, and then imaging depending on their symptoms. And then for your high-voltage injuries... Uh, The literature would suggest observing them for 12 hours, even if they seem fine, and refer to a burn center for any of the high-voltage injuries. If I had anything I could change at the time of that triage and at the time they're being discharged, it would be great if that single message that went out, and how you write this, I don't know, but you say to them, anything that you start to experience that's localized to the area or things that are unusual over the next two to four weeks, you really do need to go to a healthcare provider who at least has some knowledge in this area or awareness. You might go to your family doctor first, but if they're unaware, you might then consider calling your local burn center to find out who it is that they send these patients to. The hidden effects of electrical injury 
where I come at this topic is at the opposite end, where I worked in an electrical injury clinic and all of these, quote, asymptomatic patients, the vast majority of them came through emergency rooms and they wound up with symptoms that have been there sometimes for months and years undiagnosed. And so I'm coming at it from the the bad end of this. So I'm seeing the ones that they weren't missed in the emergency room, but 100% had those patients in their discharge been warned that there was something wrong and that there were places that they could go to be seen, that might have changed that course. Okay. I mean, there's obviously a referral bias there, um, but suffice to say, yeah, suffice to say that even in the patients who seem like they have a very benign injury, the discharge instructions are going to be very important because of delayed problems. So, Dr. Fish, based on your experience and what you recommend for our listeners, what kind of discharge instructions would you recommend for all these patients with electrical injuries, knowing that there's a small but significant minority of them who will show up in your clinic with delayed injury? So, this is not based on research. This is not backed up through all of the literature. We have our own literature that we produce that is heavily biased towards the low-voltage electrical injury patient. And we published in this area because there's almost nothing published on it. So that's my open bias in this area. These patients and the ones that are at risk, it is impossible to know, you know, the numerator over the denominator. You will see many more electrical injury patients in your emergency rooms than wind up in our clinics. Thank God. So what is the warning and what exactly are you looking for? So This group of patients and the ones that have the effects where the electricity has directly injured, usually it's nerve and muscle membranes, they have a fairly constant presentation in the the kinds of things they complain about. What they complain of is a difficulty with concentration, a difficulty with sequencing events. So it's not that they can't think and it's not that they can't do their job, but they have trouble doing sequences. And in particular, they complain of odd sensations, not pain, but different feelings in their limbs, often in their legs or their arms. And then probably the most horrifying thing for them are specific problems they start to notice with their memory. These are young men who are generally highly skilled workers. Many of them have low voltage injuries and they have jobs. They've been doing many of them for more than 10 years and they are unable to go back and do those jobs because those people that are dealing with electricity need to sequence all the steps for safety. So it's a particular group of people. And I think if an emergency room could warn them that if you start to notice changes in your thinking, changes in the way your arms or limbs feel where you were injured, those would be things that would lead people to say, I need to go in and see somebody. All right. And there's one particular delayed injury that can actually have catastrophic consequences that we really need to be aware of. Uh, And that's the toddler who bites on a live wire from an electrical appliance or or from the female end of of an extension cord. What is it about these oral burns in toddlers uh, that we need to be aware of before we send them home? So this is the classic kid chews on a cord um, and they get a burn to the corner of the mouth. And this can cause burns to the tongue and the 
palate, but the big deal is the delayed bleeding that you can get from the labial artery, and that can be massive bleeding, and it can happen five days up to even two weeks after the initial injury. So these people uh, need really good discharge instructions and follow-up. And the good news is that these are much more rare than they used to be, uh, thanks to injury prevention. So the electrical industry has almost wiped out this injury in North America. All of the cords that we have now, none of their, they used to be covered with this sort of pseudo-insulating area that when it got wet, it would conduct. But all of these um, plastic encased cords and things are so safe that we rarely see them now. Very occasionally, we see now uh, some odd ones. Um, the one that has replaced that are the kids now that hold their charge cords for their phones in their mouth when they pull them out and then it drapes across their mouth or it pulls off the cord. And we have seen a couple of those in the recent years, which never used to happen. The teaching at the emergency room in terms of this labial artery bleed is being able to show the parent and the emergency person where the labial artery is and how you actually take your hand and cup it around the lip and compress it from both sides and you sit there for 10 minutes by the clock. They will all stop. But if they're not shown how to do do this, it's a simple preventative treatment. Um, I've seen two labial artery bleeds that come in. They're horrifying. The parents think that their child has just been bludgeoned because they are bleeding like crazy. But just simply by using your thumb and your index finger with a simple washcloth or anything in your hand so that the lip doesn't slip around and gripping the lip on both sides and holding it, it will always stop. What a great pearl. All right, Dr. Fish, if there were three things that you could tell every emergency physician out there that you were on your sort of wish list of things that they would have done when maybe you've seen lots of cases that they hadn't done, what would the top three things be when it comes to electrical injuries and burn and and inhalation injuries? I'm going to answer that for the cutaneous burns, and I'm going to answer it for electrical injury. My experience with visible electrical injury patients coming into our emergency rooms is that the emergency room docs in general are quite attentive, even though they may never have seen them. They immediately recognize that they are dealing with something different, and it is very rare that they don't call for help. And so interestingly, the the emergency room experience may not be smooth or it may not necessarily be be the necessarily the order that you want it, but the basics are usually attended to in those high voltage injuries. They are very dramatic when they come in, or they certainly can be very dramatic and they are tended to well. I think the one area that gets missed is that you get sucked into the burn. And so they're all over the burn. They're taught that you see these dried limbs being held in weird positions and that tends to add this drama, but the emergency docs do well. And it's really just making sure that they don't get sucked into the burn and miss the major trauma. And I've only really seen that a couple of times. Let's switch now and talk about the cutaneous burn. There are if I had two things that I would put out to the emergency room, if there was a way of teaching it, and again, they're rare, like major cutaneous burns in children or adults, we don't see a lot of them due to our efforts of prevention. We've done a good job in this. But when they do come in, the two things that get undertreated are one is a failure to recognize that what you see at time zero with those burns, and particularly with the skull burns, is not what you're going to see 
time day seven. There's a real underappreciation of how significant that cutaneous injury is. And that is really hard to teach. The only way you can teach is through experience. We have paramedics and people that come to the burn centers. They spend a short time and they get a chance to see the evolution of this injury. That would be really high on my list is an underappreciation of the depth and what's going to happen. And the second thing a little bit less so in the adults, but more so in the children, is the failure to treat their pain. It is the number one thing that patients remember 25 years later after a skull burn, a parent or a child will recall for you the pain in the emergency room, which was not treated. And there is not an emergency room care worker, physicians, nurses, anyone that works there that doesn't have the ability to treat the pain. So that's how I would choose my top three. All right. So the big top three then are that any kind of burn injury, whether it's electrical, inhalational, scalding burn, it's a trauma first approach. The second one is delayed injury is possible with all these injuries, with electrical injuries, with scald burns and delayed injuries we have to be aware of so that we have the patients followed up properly and that we give them good discharge instructions. And then finally, that Treating the pain is something that they're going to remember years later, uh, which should be a priority. We should never forget to treat the pain aggressively in the emergency department. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for this two-part podcast on burn injuries and electrical injuries. Thank you so much, Dr. Fish, for your infinite wisdom uh, on this topic. Your experience will, I think, guide emergency physicians all around the world to make better decisions uh, when it comes to burn and electrical injuries. And Dr. Ivankovic, thank you so much for suggesting this topic in the first place. I think it's one that we don't often think about, but when we do get that patient, uh, this is definitely an opportunity for us to save a life, to decrease morbidity, and to do the right thing. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Anton. 